Now I'm here. And now I'm here. Now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode 21, Fits and Starts. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development Organization in Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer from somewhere else. Guess where? Not Poughkeepsie. <laughs> Definitely not Poughkeepsie this week. Yeah, you don't want to. It's too cold here. All right. Uh, Martin, where have you been lately? Well, I've been to Whittlebury Hall for the GSC UK Annual Conference, which this year was three days, November 5th to 7th. And I have to say, my stream, which is basically the performance and capacity one, we had a blast on. Yeah, well, I'm on the large systems track, and we had an even bigger blast. So there you go. Mm. I was there, too. It's a wonderful event, and I'm really happy it was three days. No, you didn't. Ours was more fun than yours. Oh, well, we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> so we do. We have some feedback this time, which is great. Yes, we got some from a listener in New Zealand. Yeah, we have a suggestion from him that he wants to hear about GDPS. Wonderful topic. So I think I have just the person in mind for that. We'll get right on it. And I think I know this guy too, so he would be super. And we also have some follow-up items as well. So you might have noticed, at least I hope you did, in the last episode, the gentler stereo effect, basically less wide stereo field. Yeah, and this is in response to two listener comments that we get. And uh, so this has been important that you guys have told us about it. And I, of course, pass it on to Martin because Martin does the audio on this for us. Right, and actually moving to Ferrite as my audio editor on iOS enabled this. This is much easier now. In fact, actually, the last episode was completely edited in Ferrite on iOS. So maybe we should talk about that sometime. Yes, I think, I think we probably should. There's quite a lot to say about it. Uh, and this episode, we're going to work on something else, which is the sound quality. Yeah, let's talk about that one also as well in the future. Yeah, because I, th I think the last episode wasn't wonderful, and hopefully this one will be a lot better. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed with the sound, but we do what we do with what we have, right? Right, right, absolutely, and we're learning all the time. The other piece of follow-up is we've talked about DocBuddy a few times, and this is just to note that there is a new release of DocBuddy. It's called 221, actually the same release number on iOS and Android. Yeah, but when we compared the Android and the iOS DocBuddy content, even though the release level was the same, it appears the content is different, so just be aware of that. So, explain the title of the episode, Marna. It's Fits and Starts. Well, you know what? It's funny, because actually I had a little bit of a say in the title this time. And it really has to do with the topic topic, which is, uh, you'll hear about it in a little bit. But in a funny kind of way, you didn't really have a say in it, because it's also to do with the performance topic. Yeah, that's true. I never do win out in the end, do I? All right. So let's talk about what's new. What have we recently announced uh, in ZOS 2.3? We'll just cover a couple of things, a small subset, very briefly, the ones that caught my eye. So the first one is ZOSMF Sysplex, uh, Sysplex Management Task, and it is an APAR PI99307. And why I really like this is in ZOS 2.3, we had the ability to view Sysplex resources, but now with this PTF on 2.3, I can modify Sysplex resources. Wow, I, I really ex am excited about this function. That sounds like a goodie. Yeah, i got to play around with that a little bit more. Of course, on systems that people will let me play around with that on, because now it's not just viewing, it's modifying. 
Uh, the other thing that really caught my eye was a brand new ZOSMF plugin. It's called the Zert Net- Network Analyzer. Boy, they these names are hard for plugins. And this is going to allow you to visually determine uh, your TCP and enterprise extender traffic to see if it's cryptographically protected or not. This is underneath that umbrella that we're calling pervasive encryption, so it's pretty important. And this Zert Network Traffic Analyzer will be shipped on 2.3 in a PTF for PHO3137, which as of this recording is still open. So Zert is sort of an acronym. It might have been easier for you to pronounce the full words. Yeah, Encryption Readiness Technology. I believe that's what it stands for, so gosh. We do pick them, don't we? And now it's time for our mainframe topic. Yeah, for today's mainframe topic, I'd like to talk about an enhancement that's come in a little older and been enhanced again, and that's SMF recording of APF modifications. So this was a customer requirement that came in, and we've we've been able to get it into a release, and so it's been there for a while. And the idea of this is that after the IPL, if you make dynamic changes to APF, we really needed to reflect them in SMF records. So we're going to start doing that in SMF 90 subtype 30 sec, sorry, 37. So I gather this all kicked off in ZOS 2.2. Yeah, so the first part of it came in ZOS 2.2, exactly right. So the information that we'll put in the SMF record is, you know, what you were doing to APF. Were you adding something, deleting something? Uh, did you do it with a set prog command with no spaces? Did you do it in a set space prog command or did you use the API? Um, CSVA uh, PF, which is the service that you could call to do it in a program. We'll tell you what PARMLIBE member, if you had specified it, data set name, volseer, time, job name, all that kind of great kind of stuff you'll have in the SMF record for ZOS 2.2. And we're talking about this because there's even more in 2.3, right? Yeah, exactly. And so we've enhanced it even more in 2.3. And so the RACFU token is going to be also stored in its unencrypted format, which is more helpful to people. And we're going to give you the console name of what happened. And we also have a kind of a goodie item that we have included also in ParmLive member PROG, P-R-O-G, one of my favorite ParmLive members. And there's a new statement in there called APF-SMF-ALL. Okay, so that's one word, APF-SMF-ALL. And what that means is when you specify that, right, the default is not to have it, but if you want to specify it, you can. And what that means is that we will record in SMF all of the requests that you tried to do, but they were already in the correct state. Meaning if you tried to add a data set uh, to be APF authorized and that data set was already APF authorized, we will now indicate that that data set was already APF authorized. And so, you know, we didn't switch it to add it, right? So those are all fields and SMF records accordingly if you've asked for APF SMF all to be in your PROG00 or your PROG Parmline member. So how would the customer use this? Well, you know, it's really easy because if you're going to make dynamic APF changes, right, with, uh, you know, doing a, in the PROG member, you can add it or delete it or set PROG command. Uh, you know, to do an add or delete after the IPL. I mean, you're already going to get it, and we're going to trigger those events now to collect SMF 90 subtype 37 records. But you have to indicate that you want to collect those SMF records. So, of course, in your SMF PRM ParmLive member, you know, say that you want to collect 90 subtype 37, and then when you trigger them just from making 
uh, dynamic APF changes, we will cut the record for you. The other thing, of course, is it's all very well to cut records, but somebody potentially has to be prepared to think about processing them, even if it's only an auditor. Yeah, exactly, because presumably that's why we had this requirement in the first place is because auditors wanted to see when the content changed, and so now we have a record of that. And it strikes me that this is a cheap record to collect. Yeah, I would assume so. I'm not much of a performance person, but I don't think people make these changes all the time, right? So it's not something that you're going to push a lot of overhead onto the system in order to cut these records, and because I don't think it happens all that often. All of which says that everybody should really enable this if they can. Yeah, because it's a good thing to have collecting, and if the auditors asked for it, it would be awful nice to have it ready to give to them. Our performance topic today is a very interesting one. So Martin, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, this is a fascinating one for me, and it's a DDF case, DDF being part of DB2 and standing for Distributed Data Facility. Now, Martin, we talked about DDF before. We talked about it in episode 13, right? Yeah, I'm kind of a repeat offender here, aren't I? But actually, that was about my even more fun with DDF presentation. Yeah, so let's just recap. DDFs are how do you get, uh, how you get DB2 transactions running from an outside of an LPAR, right? Yes, that's right. So there are some other cases like a Type 4 JDBC driver, which could be local, but essentially, yes, it's how you get at DB2 from outside the LPAR. So why are we revisiting this topic? Well, this was a particularly fascinating customer problem that I was dealing with. So to back up a little bit, central to my work in analyzing DDF is some analysis code that I wrote to process SMF 101 DB2 accounting trace data. So this is the analysis code that you use to examine this particular customer case? Yes, that's right. Now, I did actually have to make some minor enhancements, which proved very handy in this case. But yes, it's, it's my existing DDF analysis code. So what was the customer problem that, that got it to your attention? Well, the customer complained that their DDF application, one of their main applications, in fact, stopped dead one evening for one whole minute. Now, this customer application is actually serviced by a three-way data sharing group. So they sent in SMF 101 DB2 accounting trace data from all three of those data sharing group members for three hours around the stoppage. They also sent in another three hours worth of data, but from the previous evening when they actually hadn't complained. So I think they thought that the previous evening was a case of good behavior by the application and the DB2 subsystems. So what did you do with this data when you received it? Well, I, I plotted application statistics, which we'll come on to in a minute, at the one second interval level across both of the days. Wow, so that's a lot of data. You had six hours worth of data and every second a plot, that was gonna be over 21,000 points, right? Yes, which is actually where I got to curse at Excel quite a bit. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this, but I graphed each day separately, which kind of helped a little bit. As an aside, I know I'm doing well with a customer when we both curse at Excel together, except for in this case, so far I've been cursing at Excel alone. But it's a good bonding exercise to curse with somebody about a common tool like Excel. So one of the key things I plotted was transaction ending rate for each member by second which did indeed show something I generally call sloshing, but it actually showed much more than that. What exactly is sloshing? 
So sloshing is a case where it looks like one member is a really good place to run, so suddenly all the work runs on that one member. And then, because of the onrush of work, it's not such a good place to run work. And something else looks like a good place to run work, so all the work sloshes, if you like, over to that other place, and so on. In this case, around the three members of the data sharing group, um, one at a time. So we did see that. What was also interesting about the data, though, was it showed that the previous evening, the so-called good case, they'd had a 40-second stoppage, or hiatus as I like to call it, that they hadn't even complained about. Okay, so let me get this straight. They thought a good case was 40 seconds of stoppage, but they did notice it when they got to one minute, and that one-minute threshold idea is pretty interesting that that was a problem. So what do you think? Why, why did you see those stoppages? Right, so this is the interesting bit to me. So the prime theory was that the transactions actually were running, but they were running really slow. So the transactions were elongated. Now, were the transactions elongated or were they just not appearing at all? So there is, there is some more evidence here. So after the one minute hiatus, the transaction elapsed times actually got longer. Now you could argue, and I'll come on to why that is in a second, that really these are very slow transactions, not ones basically not getting into the system. But the reason why I think it's a case of a hiatus rather than slow transactions is because basically the time in the records for each transaction doesn't even begin to cover the one minute hiatus. Now one thing you need to note here in the data is Basically, an SMF 101 accounting trace record is written at transaction ending or commit, not on some kind of interval. So if a transaction takes a long time to run, you just don't see a record until the very end, and that could be a long time. Now, here, the timing doesn't work out that way. So it's clearly not a case of the transactions are suddenly taking longer to run once they get in. Now, to look at this further, this is where I had to enhance my code a little bit, because I hadn't previously in my DDF analysis code looked at the time components when you're in DB2, the so-called class 2 and class 3 times. And I did that here. And when you add up all those components and take it away from the headline response time, you get what's called not accounted for time, because it's not accounted for. Typically, that's CPU queuing. But actually, in this case, I really didn't see very much of that at all. So it wasn't a situation of queuing for CPU. And to do this in DB2 time component analysis, I basically zoomed in on each of these two 3600 second graphs to look at a much, much shorter time range, basically about a 4x zoom in. And by the way, what a pain that is to do with Excel. Yeah, you said you'd get back to a Excel complaint, and you did. Right. A pro tip here, I think the only way of handling this is basically to take the data as a CSV file and in the text editor chop out the um, extraneous time to effectively zoom in. But that, that's really a bit of a hack. And there's somebody, dear listener, like you, who knows better. What was also interesting is when the transaction started again, they actually were elongated, including this not accounted for time, which generally we think of as CPU queuing. Now that's probably clearing some kind of backlog somewhere in the extended system. So the best theory here is that something external stopped the transactions from arriving, rather than when they got into DB2, um, 
they had actually got slowed down. And I think they must have had this problem many times, you know, what I would call near misses, and this time they got the custard pie in the face. Yeah, so, so how did they detect that this time they did get the pie in the face, this time it was a problem? Well, firstly, remember that the previous night they'd had a 40-second elongation, which probably didn't go detected, and that would be a near miss. So I would speculate that they had some threshold, this, this one-minute threshold, some external monitor that might have suddenly alerted them. Or alternatively, some kind of standby process kicks in after a minute. So, so that's probably what alerted them to the fact that something was wrong on this particular night. So, you know, a custard pie in the face is, in this case, is a detected one-minute hiatus, and a near miss is, is something less than that, like the 40 seconds. And if we're going with the theory that something external stopped the transactions arriving, it's actually quite well corroborated because when I say they got no transactions for a whole minute, this actually was across all three data sharing members. Um, so that kind of supports the theory, really, because if it had been one, you might say there's something wrong with routing to that subsystem, or you might say there's something wrong with that subsystem itself. But I think this basically was something external that stopped transactions to, to everywhere. Another thing that's notable is that once the transaction started flowing again, I saw spikes in the transaction arrival rates basically every minute, bang on the second. Well, there you go. There's that one minute again. That seems to be a very popular time amount in this whole story. Y yes, I, I think it's very suspicious. So it could be something in the middle tier doing something on a one-minute basis. Maybe it's retrying stuff on a one-minute basis, a batch at a time or something. It's really not clear, but I think the one-minute story is an interesting one. So the key learning points from this, again, the thing I keep banging on about is that if you drill in well below the RMF interval, which is typically 10 or 15 minutes, you get to see fine structure, or in this case, really very coarse structure. So, you know, previously I've talked about that as being how you detect sloshing or workload routing anomaly behaviors. But this time, it was a bung in the pipe that we detected. Yeah, so if, if you wanted to dig down even further, you could actually, with the SMF timestamp granularity, you could go down to something like a hundredth of a second, right? That's a whole lot of data points. That's a hundred more times than you had problems with Excel in the first place. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? But actually, you, you wouldn't get many transaction endings per data point if you did that. So, so you, things would look very lumpy. So if you think about it, 100 transactions a second, let's say, is one transaction every hundredth of a second. So you'd have some intervals with no transactions, and other intervals with one, and others with two, and so on. And so the transaction rate would look very lumpy. But if you coalesce it up to, let's say, the one second level, it looks much more meaningful as a statistical population. So, yes, taking the granularity down is great, but you can go too far with this. Now it's time for our topics topic. Yeah, so we're going to talk about fitness tracking, and this is an opinion that both Martin and I have, so it's, it's a really good topics topic for this episode. So why are we doing fitness tracking? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'm I'm pretty nosy about data, especially personal data. <laughs> so I thought this might be a good topic to talk about. And I thought as the performance guy, I was supposed to be nosy about data. Well, I am actually, but actually my motivation is I wanted to get fitter again. 
and I wanted to shift some of that weight. Yeah, that's uh, always a goal for me as well. So what do I use? I use Fitbit, of course, you guys. Everybody knows that I'm an Android person, and I chose to use Fitbit. I personally have a Fitbit Charge 2. So what are the key features of the Charge 2? Well, there are a lot of features, but I'll tell you the ones that I like and I use the most. So number one is sleep analysis. (laughs) I really do enjoy a full night's sleep, and I really like on Fitbit that I can do excellent analysis of sleep. So light sleep, deep sleep, uh, REM sleep, hours, time I go to sleep, time I wake up, uh, accumulations of sleep. I really, really like that a lot. And the other thing I do to try to get more fit is I, I'm kind of avid about looking at my step count as well. So that, that one seems every, everybody has step counts, but I kind of look at that as well. Also, I can look at the heart rate, and I, I like looking at that occasionally as well, especially if I've done a whole lot of steps. So for quite a few years, I had a Fitbit Flex, which was much less sophisticated than your Charge 2. And actually, you mentioned Android just now, but I'm use, I was using my Flex with actually the Apple iPhone. Um, so it's not particularly any platform dependent. Yeah, but as I know you're going to get to, you're going to probably favor the Apple one later on. But, but that one, it's not a surprise. But anyway. Uh, I did see, I use a Fitbit Charge 2, but I did see actually that there's coming a Fitbit Charge 3. And in the Fitbit Charge 3, they're touting a longer battery life, not just a tap on the screen. You can do a swipe on the screen. Uh, there's additional syncing, I guess, with the phone that you can do, additional straps. I don't know, that kind of stuff. I, I don't know if I'm going to go for that. I kind of like what I have with the Fitbit Charge 2. But let's talk about the Fitbit app that I use on Android. So there's a lot of enhanced, uh, the data I get off of my Fitbit Charge 2 that I wear on my wrist, it syncs up with my Fitbit app on my Android. And that's where kind of all the brains come in, because that's where it can calculate uh, all the information, miles and calories. And that's where I get all that great sleep analysis I was mentioning before. And I can get to keep it over time, right? So I look, can look at it over a day, a month, or overall. And this is what I kind of like, too. I can also compare with females that are in my same age bracket to see how I compare with other people. So that's really cool. And I get that all from my app on the phone. So I was actually using the Fitbit app with the Fitbit Flex when I was actively using that. And I did all those sorts of things apart from really sleep analysis and the peer stuff. Now I have a Fitbit Aria set of scales, which wirelessly will communicate with the Fitbit app. So I only really use it for tracking my weight from week to week. Mm, that's, that's pretty simple then. All right. So why don't you talk about what device you use? So I'm a big fan of the Apple Watch. I have had two Apple Watches now, the so-called Apple Watch Zero, which is the original one, and now a Watch 3. And the Watch 3, by the way, is much better than the Watch Zero ever was. So I've moved on to that for my Fitbit Flex. And I have to say I wanted the watch for a whole bunch of other reasons, some of which have come to fruition, some which haven't. But I started using it actively for health monitoring a few months ago. And so, as I say, I can do all the things that that you're doing pretty much on the watch, although I have to say I'm still not doing sleep tracking because my view is the more I analyze my sleep, the more it contributes to loss of sleep. It's just one of those (laughs) personal dynamics, you know. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Sleep's very important to me. All right. So this is another reason, uh, you know, as well as getting fit and wanting to look at my own personal data, we also had, at least in America, at IBM, we have employer incentives to use these devices. 
and they're associated with trying to reduce health care costs and give you rebates. So one thing that brings this on is that now IBM and my health insurance company have this data from me, right? Because this device links to something that we call vitality, and this information is stored there, and people can get at it. So this is one thing I had to kind of overcome when I agreed to let this linking happen. So we talked about these sorts of privacy concerns, which you're alluding to on episode nine, in fact, some time ago. Yeah, we were talking about it episode nine when we talked about those smart speakers, but I think it's still kind of the basic concern that people might have about this. Yeah, I entirely agree. Now, on, on my part, I don't have health care insurance because I have the National Health Service, which, of course, I'm very protective of. And this is about as political as this podcast, I think, is going to get for now. Yes, please. Let's let's stop there. <laughs> <laughs> we probably agree about this, but nonetheless, let's stop there. So let's move on swiftly to what's the outcome been? Well, for my part, well, on the Apple Watch, there are three rings for various things. There's standing every hour for 12 hours. There's doing a certain number of hundreds of calories worth of exercise. And there's a certain number of exercise minutes all in a day to do. So every day there's a set of three rings. Now, I have actually managed to close my rings every day for three months. Now, people might not believe me, but I didn't used to be obsessive. Well, I certainly am now. I'm jolly well not going to fail to close my rings tomorrow, having got this far without failing. So, yes, closing the rings, I've definitely done that. Um, I have to say, by the way, the thing that enables me to keep going with exercise is the use of podcasts on my podcast player of choice, which is Overcast on iOS, which is able to send podcast episodes to the watch. So, fun enough, one of the easiest ways of getting the exercise is to run rather than to walk in the day. And quite often now, I run with just the watch and my AirPods in my ears and no phone at all, which is really very nice. So, you know, I've, I've been closing the rings obsessively, if you like, for weeks and weeks and weeks now, being fueled by listening to stuff. Um, and, and frankly, the issue for me would be one of boredom um, if I didn't have something to listen to. So podcasts are certainly keeping me going. And, you know, as a result of that, I have actually lost a considerable amount of weight. Not sure I'm prepared to reveal how much in public. And similarly, and this is the surprise for me, my cardiac situation got much better. My resting heart rate, for one, is considerably lower than it used to be. And actually, I recover faster from exercise. One of the functions on the watch is to track your heart rate after you stop exercise for a few minutes. And maybe it's not a surprise, but my recovery from exercise is now much faster than it was. And here's the vanity bit. Guess what? My clothes fit better. Yeah, but uh, having to buy a whole new wardrobe, that could prove to be expensive. Or not to have to buy ones in the bigger size to be a pessimist for a second. That, that's true, too. So it looks like, you know, with data, we've actually been able to turn around. And uh, some of it was pretty alarming, I think, when I saw how few steps I got. And now I'm going to get a lot and how much I did not sleep. And now I'm trying to do that better. I've lost some pounds, too, and I'm not prepared to say that. But I am working very hard on making sure that I get the right amount of steps every day as well. And it, these devices are, well, this device that I have is definitely helping me doing that and I'm obsessed about looking at the app every morning to see how my sleep was the night before. So that's that's proven to be pretty interesting as well. So 
I guess what we've kind of uh, thought about here is that once you get started with this, you know, fitness tracking, it really helps you keep going on it, right? Absolutely. Measure and adjust. And you too could become as obsessive as I did. And as we come to the end of this episode, we have, as we so often do, a customer requirement. IBM customer requirements we discuss are neither committed nor indicated that they are even going to be in plan. They may not be even a good idea to do. They are simply two people talking about customer requirements publicly available for viewing and ones that catch your eyes. By no means should every requirement they talk about be construed as anything that the IBM Corporation is even thinking of doing. Our opinions are our own. Your mileage may vary. Void were prohibited and items displayed or a serving suggestion, part of a nutritious breakfast, and past results are not indicative of future performance. Yeah, so the one that I decided to pick for today's discussion is uh, called ZOSMF Supplied FTP Profiles Need to be GDPR Compliant. So the text of this requirement reads, ZOSMF Supplied FTP Profiles can't be modified to require passwords per GDPR compliance and can't be removed. They are useless now and confusing as they can't be removed and can't be modified. Adoption of ZOSMF problem management is difficult enough with the additional confusion of FTP profiles that no longer work and can't be modified or removed. So IBM has made a response on this already, and IBM has said, we take this as the ability for a customer to remove the IBM-supplied profiles that they don't want to use, such as profiles that don't require a user ID and password. So in my opinion, uh, this is where Marna starts. <laughs> it looks like IBM is taking uh, this one seriously and that we will, I think, going to intend you allow to remove a supplied pro- uh, profile that IBM gives you from ZOSMF. So to me, this sounds like a very reasonable thing that we might be wanting to do. Yeah, it sounds reasonable to me too, particularly as the letters G, D, P, and R whacked together come into the requirement. So, yeah, we take GDPR pretty seriously, actually, at least in my neck of the woods we do, and I'm pretty sure we do across IBM. So, yeah, it sounds like a reasonable one in that spirit alone. Yeah, let's let's see how this one fans out, but I, I, I think it might be, might be good from at least those right words are in there. So let's talk about where we expect to be speaking and going to in, in the near future. So in principle, I'm done for the year. In principle is the key words here, because goodness only knows really, but I have no plans to go anywhere this side of Christmas myself. Uh, I've got one more trip, uh, one more to go, and then that's my last trip, and that's to Milan, Italy, which is not going to be a bad trip, I'm sure. But why I'm really excited about going there is we're going to have a small conference for the Italian customers on November 27th and 28th. So if you will be an Italian customer and they're on 27 or 28 Milan, we would love to see you there. Of course, we welcome feedback anytime and we take it seriously. And I think we demonstrated that with uh, modifying what we did on, on the stereo. Yeah, and I guess we'll deliver it even more if we can get a GDPS uh, topic in the future too. So as usual on the blog, Martin, what have you got? <laughs> Well, I've got two really quite different things. So as I talked at the beginning of this episode about the Ferrite Audio Editor, I actually wrote a review, well, early experiences review. Obviously, my experience with an audio editor is going to be restricted to 
uh, screencasts, but also most particularly this series. So Appending 7, Ferrite Audio Editor on iOS is one blog post of mine, which actually got an awful lot of hits and a comment from the developers of the product itself, which is nice. The other one, much more on topic, I suppose, for my day job, is called Three Early SMF89 Results. Now, we talked about SMF89, at least in passing, in episode 19, when we talked about software cost and, and technical instrumentation. And somewhere, probably in that episode, I talked about being on a journey with SMF89. And so this blog post is really some very nice, slightly surprising, perhaps, results of things you can do with SMF89 that you might not have been aware of. So I have two blog posts this time. All right. I don't have another blog post. I've been spending my time doing lots of other interesting stuff, but I, I will get back to my blog soon. So if you're wondering how to contact us, you can reach me at mwally at us.ibm.com. Oh, and I'm also mwally at Twitter as well. <laughs> I thought You were waiting for me to say that one, weren't you? I was, and this is staying in because I, I can now make a joke about I thought you were a Twitter refusenik like so many other people. Well, of course, I'm not a Twitter refusenik, so you can still find me as Martin Packer on Twitter oh. and Martin underscore Packer at uk.ibm.com for email. So it goes.